Well, welcome to the Dogs Program. Here we are once again, Saturday, 12 midday, every Saturday. We are here to defend and to promote public education. That's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It's accessible to all children, all teachers, all staff, all principals. There's no question of discrimination in public education. As well as that, it should be publicly owned because it's the only uh, education system which is publicly accountable for billions of dollars of money, although there are billions, of course, that go out of state aid to private schools which are not adequately accounted for, and private can, in fact, never be public. Well, there's been a lot of talk in the last week about religious schools, uh, but the strange thing is that a lot of religious schools appear to have business plans. They appear to, in fact, be multinational organisations. And one of these is Haleberry College. It's a very interesting school. It has two or three uh, schools or places where children are supposed to be educated in Victoria alone. And there's another school in the Northern Territory. And there's a school in China. And the Chinese school is causing Halliberry College a little bit of grief. And Oliver is going to tell us about this in our press release 923. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. This is press release 923. Halliberry's business operation falls foul of the law in China. Tom Cowie in the age of February 6th, reported on a Chinese labour court, which has ordered one of Melbourne's most prominent private schools to compensate a former teacher for wages that were unpaid at its international campus near Beijing. The report exposes the fact that some private schools in Australia, under the cloak of religion, are running multinational businesses at taxpayers' expense. So what happened in China? Haleyberry College, College's China campus was taken to a provincial arbitration tribunal last year after one of its teachers resigned from his role at the Tianjin School earlier in 2021, claiming that Haleyberry owed him money. The college has operated the Haleyberry International School in China since 2013, in addition to its four Melbourne campuses and one in the Northern Territory. In November, the teacher who asked not to be identified because he still works in China was awarded nearly 37,000 Chinese yuan, which is $8,143 in Australian money, in lieu of wages not paid for several months in 2020 and 2021, according to the ruling. The teacher was also awarded more than 40,000 Chinese yuan, $8,806, as compensation for the termination of their contract. The respondent, Haley Berry, shall pay the labor compensation in full and on time, the ruling said, according to a translation of the document made by the Sunday Age. However, Haleyberry has disputed the matter, claiming that the teacher owed the school money for a loan higher than the amount of unpaid wages. The case is being appealed to a separate civil court and Haleyberry did not comment on the proceedings directly. The decision comes after some staff at the school expressed disquiet at the way the international school's principal, Peter Rogerson, cut wages during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
if they did not return to China to recommence in-person teaching. According to an email sent to staff by Mr. Rogerson in October 2020 and seen by the Sunday Age, wages would be cut to either 75% of their usual pay, 50% or zero, depending on their return date to China. At the time, a number of staff were not in the country as the school had moved to remote learning during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mr. Rogerson issued an ultimatum for them to return to China or not get paid. My expectation was that staff on finally receiving their PU letters and visa requirement would be eager to return. But unfortunately, I'm hearing that for personal and family reasons, and I'm not questioning their decisions, some are not intending to hurry back, wrote Mr. Rogerson. And whilst you are entitled to make such decisions, they will have consequences beyond just extended leave without pay that I need to outline to you in advance, to be fair. Mr. Rogerson said in the email that his loyalty would be with those who had remained in China and those who had moved mountains to return by his October deadline. So for any staff still offshore, they will remain as absent without pay and I make no guarantee I will be able to find any remote work for them, he wrote. Another former Haleybury teacher who also declined to be named as he was considering legal action, said getting back to China was much more difficult than had been outlined due to embassy closures and other travel restrictions. They started to get quite a bit of pushback from parents of the teachers for in-person learning, the former teacher said. And the teachers that were there in person were so overworked and burned out that they essentially said, these people abroad, forget them. We're the ones you should be taking care of. All of a sudden, we were horrible people who didn't deserve to be paid. Once he handed in his res resignation, the teacher said Haleybury made it difficult to obtain his final payout and any belonging, belongings still at his Chinese apartment. The money was held over our head. The property was held over our head, he said. A Haleybury spokesperson said Jing's management had done its utmost to assist all staff, including the teachers who didn't return to China for the new school semester in 2020. Jin supported all offshore teachers by continuing their employment at 75% of their normal salary, he said. This reduction was used to pay other staff overtime to run their classes in their absence. Now Kim will give us some um, Akara My School website information about the school. Yes, we're dealing here with a very, very wealthy school, um, which has got a business operation in China. And uh, the treatment of their teachers is... Uh, leaves a lot to be desired, I suggest. But um, Kim, let's hear how much money these people are dealing with just in Victoria alone. Okay, Jean. So we've got an enrolment of 4,206 students, 2,357 of them are boys, 1,849 are girls. The year value is well above average at 1,131. The Upper 25% of parental income, so the wealthiest of parents, make up about 70%. The second level after that, or the second quartile, is 17%. Our lower middle class parents make up about 5%, and the lowest 25% of parents or the disadvantaged group would make up 1%. So really a school with a vast majority of advantaged students, but with 31% speaking a language other than English and no Indigenous students. As far as the finances go, recurrent grants, 
the school of recurrent grants, the school receives $26.6 million from the Australian government, $3.8 million from the Victorian government, $101.3 million from fees and parental contributions, and other private contributions make up $6 million. So per, pu per pupil, that's about $30,805. And their capital is $26.6 over three years. And these figures do not take into account the myriad taxation expenditures or exemptions enjoyed by private schools in Australia. Children, teachers, parents and grandparents struggling to provide basic facilities in our public schools can only feel gobsmacked by the grand business plans of the Haley Berry School Administrators built on the certainty of tens of millions of taxpayer dollars falling into their coffers every year. Well, thank you very much. So there we've got some insight into how the other half is. But uh, we'll go over now after a bit of a break and uh, we'll find out a bit more about what's happening with the funding for our public schools. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, uh, we're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and um, I hope too that you would consider becoming a subscriber to 3CR. It's very important uh, that you think about this because this week is subscriber week and uh, 3CR gets by on the skin of a greasy rag like a lot of disadvantaged public schools around Australia. So we've got a lot in common and um, we hope that you will consider becoming a subscriber to 3CR in the coming week. But um, we're now going to find out a bit more on the facts and figures uh, front from Maddie because Trevor Cobalt from SOS has been doing his figures again. And his new school funding figures puts pressure on the Labor Party to step up the public schools because really we can't expect too much from the Morrison government. Yes, the new school funding figures pressure Labor to step up for public schools. New school funding figures show that government funding for private schools increased by nearly five times that for public schools over the last 10 years. They put pressure on Labor in the lead up to the federal election to end the chronic underfunding of public schools. Public schools face a funding crisis because they will continue to be massively underfunded over the rest of the decade under existing arrangements. New figures published in the 2022 report on government services shows that government, Commonwealth and state, funding of private schools adjusted for inflation increased by $3,338 per student between 2009 and 10 and 2019 to 20, compared to $703 per student for public schools. The contrast is even worse in percentage terms. Funding per private school student increased by 34% compared to only 5% for public schools. That is nearly seven times the increase for public schools. The funding policies of both the Commonwealth and state governments have favored private schools over public schools. Commonwealth funding for private schools increased by $3,001 per student compared to $1,181 for public schools. 
State governments cut funding for public schools by $478 per student, while increasing funding for private schools by $337 per student. So ridiculous. The new figures put pressure on Labor to deliver a better funding deal for public schools. Labor's recent school funding policy announcement is only a drip in the bucket of what is needed to fully fund public schools. Labor pledged $440 million to schools for better ventilation, building upgrades and mental health support to provide a COVID safe learning environment. The funding will go to all schools, public and private. The program includes $240 million for upgrades to improve ventilation and air quality by buying air purifiers, upgrading heating, ventilation and air conditioning systems and other facilities. Another $200 million will be used for more school counsellors and psychologists and extra funding for camps, excursions, as well as sporting and social activities that improve student wellbeing. It would be catastrophic if this were Labor's sole commitment on school funding in its federal election platform. As a result of funding changes over the past decade and more, public schools have far fewer human and material resources than Catholic and independent schools, despite having to cater for the vast majority of disadvantaged students. Moreover, these inequalities in funding will worsen over the rest of the decade under the current arrangements. Public schools face a funding crisis over the rest of the decade. Public schools in all states except the ACT will be funded at 91% or less of their SRS until at least 229. The average funding share of their SES will be only 90.4% by to, um, 2029. In contrast, private schools in all states except the Northern Territory will be funded at 100% or more of their SRS by 2022 and through to 2029. Their average funding share will be 101% in 2029. These differences in government funding shares of the SRS have huge implications in terms of the funding available to public and private schools. Public schools will be massively underfunded for the rest of the decade, while private schools will be overfunded. The, cumul the cumulative underfunding of public schools over 2019 to 20 will amount to about $74 billion. This is an average of $6.7 billion per year over the 11 years. Underfunding of public schools in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland will be nearly $60 million. In contrast to this massive underfunding of, pub of public schools, private schools will be overfunded by about $5 billion. The disparities in income levels between public and private schools translates into large differences in the availability of human and material resources. OECD data reveals a shocking misallocation of teaching and physical resources between public and private schools in Australia. Much higher proportions of students in public schools have their learning hindered by inadequate resources. Nearly one quarter of public secondary school students have their learning hindered by a shortage of teachers and one fifth in, by inadequately qualified teachers, generally reflected in the high proportion of teachers having to teach out of field. There are vast differences in the quality of school infrastructure. Public schools do the heavy lifting in our education system. They enroll 80% or more of disadvantaged students, which is low SES, 80%, Indigenous, 84%, extensive disability, 86%, and remote area students, 82%. Also, over 90% of the most disadvantaged schools are public schools. 
international and national test results show huge inequities in school outcomes. Disadvantaged students are two to four years behind high SES students. There are also large disparities in year 12 outcomes. Unless there is a dramatic change in school funding policies, the vast inequity in school outcomes will continue for the rest of the decade. Labor must step up for public schools in this election campaign. Labor's shadow minister for education, Tanya Plibersek, has said that the inequity at the heart of our funding system absolutely has to change. She said that every public school student should get 100% of their SRS. This should be the central feature of Labor's school funding election platform. There can be no reneging on this or it will be seen as a betrayal of public schools by Labor. The Greens have also announced they will revise the Commonwealth state school funding agreements to remove the special allowances that defraud public schools of billions in funding. They will also abolish the Morrison government's $1.2 billion, $1 billion choice and affordability slush fund for private schools and end the specials deals that are keeping private schools overfunded for most of this decade. Labor must stand shoulder to shoulder with public schools to ensure they are fully funded. It must commit to a large boost in Commonwealth funding for public schools and to renegotiate the Commonwealth state funding agreements to ensure public schools are funded at 100% of their <clears throat> schooling resource standard. It has to come up with a better plan for public schools than its recent announcement if it is to regain the confidence of public school teachers, parents and community members who see a strong public school system as fundamental to improving equity in education. Well, thank you, Maddie, for fixing us up uh, and telling us all about what Trevor Cobalt's been up to. We'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back and Jeff is going to tell us uh, what Wayne Swan thinks about the current uh, funding of public education situation. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Well, we've just been listening to uh, how Haleybury is really a business operation rather than a religious school, in spite of all the things that religious schools have had to say about discrimination acts. And we've heard from Maddie, who's been telling us about um, the new school funding figures which put pressure on Labor to step up as public schools because the private schools are winning the funding states hands down. And uh, now we're going to go to Jeff, who is going to read to us from the AEU website uh, and a very interesting article that appeared in the Australian Educator of Summit 2021, uh, Make Spending Count. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. Yes, it's, um, it's from the Australian Education Union, of course, and it says, make spending count. I had to laugh when Josh Friedberg's budget was celebrated in the usual strange places as some triumph of Keynesian-style stimulation. 
In the real world, this was a document that followed barely any of the lessons that made Australia the envy of the world after the global financial crisis, preferring to spray cash with both eyes fixed on the next election. In doing so, there was only one ideological tradition being nodded to, trickle-down economics. Of course, there were the usual targets with cuts to the NDIS and the usual areas missing or underfunded, such as affordable housing and aged care. But just as a glaring from a long-term perspective was the missed opportunity when it came to education infrastructure investment. As a treasurer during most of the recent fierce shock to our economy, I remember the extensive nature of deliberations at the vital moments. This is yeah. this is uh, Swan speaking. Oh, no, oh right, Wayne Swan. Yeah. Yes. Ah, well, I didn't know that. Yes. As treasurer during the most fierce shock to our economy, I remember the extensive nature of deliberations at the vital moments. Yes, then, like now, there was a need to get money out the door. But that urgency didn't divert us from realising there was a real chance to create a pipeline of work that would keep on delivering well into the future in the form of the Building the Education Revolution program. Do you remember That's that? Where... For the first time, our state mm -hmm. schools got a few interesting buildings and the coalition under Abbott just went on and on and on and on about it. They um, did, and they made a huge, a huge uh, hullabaloo about how it was wrecking the uh, economy by spending all this money. But actually, it saved the economy, and it uh, kept us in the black when every other uh, developed country in the world was was um, pedalling backwards at a great knots, a bit of knots. Anyway, and they that's were, where they the, were complaining about accountability for um, the contractors and so on. But since then, of course, we've had a really big stinking mess uh, in both uh, New South Wales Liberal Party and uh, in Canberra with sports rorts and so on. The, the reason they opposed the funding was because they weren't doing it and it was going to places, it wasn't going to their friends. Um, it was just, now, this is where, the, so back to Wayne Swan, this, that's where the $16.2 was invested. More than one third of the recession beating package because we realised that by investing in school facilities, we could meet several objectives at the same time. In the short term, it was money that unashamedly protected jobs at such a precarious time. In construction especially, bosses were able to keep their workers on, safe in the knowledge there was plenty of work going in every community well into the future. The subsequent employment numbers spoke for themselves, going on to underpin Australia's world-leading growth outcomes as major economies went into free fall. But in the longer term, it was the education opportunities of young Australians that were enhanced, a point that is well articulated in a recent report by the AEU, the Investing in Schools Funding the Future study, written by education economist Adam Roris, reinforces why we were always correct to put education infrastructure at the heart of our stimulus and hammers home why Frydenberg should have done the same in his last budget, building better results. The message is a clear one. Built on research from around the world, when you direct money into school infrastructure, students perform better. From there, once that vital foundation is laid, the return on investments continues decade after decade. The stark numbers in the AEU study reveal what hasn't been done for public schools in recent years, leaving a marked gap that cannot be ignored and must be remedied. With 200,000 new students forecast to attend government schools in the next decade, the time to realise this potential is right now. It's uncomfortable to consider the extent to which private schools have been looked after compared to the public throughout the time that the Liberals have been in power. Investment should follow disadvantage and need, as our Gonski reforms established when Julia Gillard was in charge. However, 
This isn't about class warfare. Instead, this is a moment for state and federal governments to bridge that gap and strengthen the economy by making it fairer, a generational stimulant consisting of 21st century facilities, be they libraries or labs, just as we did when it mattered most. That it would have the effect of once again creating tens of thousands of jobs is the cherry on top. At a time when our discourse has never been so fractured, this should not be a contested space. Indeed, this remains one of the biggest no-brainers in economic policy. Looking after the most vulnerable and lowest paid Australians has served our country well, both in the teeth of the GFC and the initial pandemic response. By doing just the same with pub public education facilities, it will help to build our national firewall against future shocks. Getting the Liberals in the cart for investment in public education in whatever form is never easy. It's not in their DNA. The way they tried to scupper the BER and undermine Gonski is a reminder of that. But that doesn't mean they can't put the future first by setting this right. Well, thank you very much, um, Jeff. It's a, a very interesting article that um, Wayne Swan, uh, speaking from experience, uh, made available in the educator and that the AEU has reproduced on their website. Uh, some of us do have memories and um, uh, Mr. Roris, of course, in his reports, he is the one expert we had in Australia on education infrastructure. So it's good to have these people uh, ringing the bells on the, uh, on the coalition government and their shortcomings in this regard. Well, we'll have a bit of a break and um, then we'll come back to talk about the Religious Discrimination Bill, which has been very, very much in news in the last week. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and we're back to try and... Um bite into the religious discrimination bill once again. The dog's position, of course, is that the uh, education should have nothing to do with religion and the state should have nothing to do with religion. So we really don't know why and uh, we really disagree with the uh, government, state or federal, having anything to do with religion. And uh, if you're going to talk about sex, then I always thought that was a rather private matter. And if, it dealt, if you're dealing with children, then I would have thought it was something that the family dealt with, not the school or a lot of other people. But apparently these days, uh, it seems to just uh, be that they can't keep their cotton-picking fingers out of it. <laughs> so the Religious Discrimination Bill, there was an interesting article. I thought we'd go a little bit academic on this. The conversation, a group of academics have done a bit of research what do the Australian public really think about all of this? Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, well, uh, they have done quite a bit of research on this uh, because this week the Religious Discrimination Bill is finally being debated on 
on the floor of federal parliament. Uh, the bills prompted disagreements within political parties, within religions and across a wide variety of other stakeholders. But what do voters actually think? A new survey, soon to be published in the Journal of Sociology, shows a majority of Australians do not think religious organisations that provide government-funded public services should be allowed to discriminate against LGBTQIA plus people. I'll say that again. Majority of Australians do not think they should be allowed to discriminate. Uh, the Religious Discrimination Bill does two key things. First, it protects religious and non-religious people from being discriminated against on the basis of their faith or lack of it. This aim is widely supported. But secondly, it allows religious people and religious organisations to discriminate against other people where the conduct is backed by genuinely held religious beliefs. As part of this, the proposed bill would permit discrimination in government-funded services such as religiously affili affiliated education, aged care, health care and welfare services. And this, been, this has been hotly debated. These parts of the bill give religious people new rights to discriminate and reduce protections already available to LGBTQIA plus people, people with disability, single mothers and unmarried couples. So their research uh, has said that their colleagues have recently conducted a study of Australians' views around the role of religion in government and public life. And they included questions in the Australian Survey of Social Attitudes that ran from February to June in 2021 with 1,162 respondents. First, they asked people a general question about whether they agree or disagree that the federal government should advocate Christian values. About one third agreed, one third disagreed and one third were unsure. Unsurprisingly, Christians were more likely to agree, 57% of, of both Anglican and Catholic respondents, and those with no religion were less likely to agree, around 20%. Coalition voters were more likely to agree, 62%, than those identifying with Labor, at 29%, and those with no party affiliation, at 31%. Now, we also asked how Australians re regarded discrimination against LGBTQIA plus people by or within faith-based service provision. We asked whether people agreed or disagreed with the statement Conservative, Catholic, Anglican, Jewish and Muslim schools should be allowed to refuse to employ a teacher because they are LGBTQIA+. Now, the vast majority of those surveys disagreed. That's 73%. 19% agreed and 8% were unsure. Only 17% of women agreed compared to 22% of men. Most respondents did not see discrimination against LGBTQIA plus teachers as a Christian value. Only 20% of Catholics agreed, 25% of Anglicans and 35% of other Christians. Among Australians who attend religious services at least monthly, less than half, that's 41%, support discrimination. 
against LGBTQIA plus teachers within conservative religious schools. And only 25% support discrimination against an LGBTQIA plus homeless person by a religiously affiliated welfare organisation. Only one quarter of those who identify with the coalition support discrimination against LGBTQIA plus teachers, even though 62% want the government to advocate Christian values. This suggests that many see discrimination as inconsistent with Christian values. A similar pattern appears among those who identify with Labor. Uh, while 29% want the government to advocate Christian values, only 14% support discrimination. Only 19% of those with no party affiliation at all support discrimination. Their analysis suggests support for discrimination is more influenced by whether a person has religious beliefs which justify discrimination rather than their political affiliation. Now we've got to remember that taxpayer funds are involved in this. Religious organisations receive billions of dollars of public money. They also employ tens of thousands of people to provide services to the general population. For example, approximately one third of schools in Australia are faith-based schools and Anglicare in Sydney alone received more than $240 million in government subsidies in both 2020 and 2021. Other research demonstrates permitting discrimination causes serious harm. For example, a 2006 Jesuit social services study found discrimination in Catholic schools towards same-sex attracted young people resulted in increased rates of homelessness, risk-taking behaviour, depression, suicide and episodes of self-harm compared to young heterosexuals. Their research suggests the majority of Australians strongly reject sections of the Religious Discrimination Bill that would allow discrimination by government-funded bodies in the name of religion. And this is true for coalition voters and religious Australians. As MPs debate this complicated and controversial bill, which has many diverse stakeholders, they should also be considering the views of the broader Australian community. Well, isn't that interesting? Because uh, there's been a lot of kerfuffle in, uh, in Canberra in the last week. But um, I've got an, uh, a letter here to the Australian on Wednesday, the 9th of February, which I think says it all from our point of view. Exemptions from government funds. This is Jenny Callicoan from Hawthorne. To many of us voters, the answer to the seemingly extremely difficult issue of framing current legislation around discrimination in schools is very simple. If schools want to receive taxpayers' money, they should adhere to all the rules that apply to government schools. If they want exemption from those rules, then they are exempt from taxpayers' money. I rather like that idea hmm. of religious schools being exempt from our money. That makes Don't perfect sense. <laughs> yes, secular money where secular rules apply. So that's from Jenny Callahan of Hawthorne. And I rather like that letter. I hope yeah, you yeah. did. 
Yeah. Yeah. Have a bit of a break. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program. And as we've told you, we are for public education and we are also for the separation of religion from the state. But unfortunately, we discover that our Prime Minister has no understanding of the separation of religion and the state. And Crikey has turned up this quite extraordinary situation where our Prime Minister, yes, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is responsible for four million going to directly to a very sus religious organisation because they are friends of his, Pentecostal friends of his. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, it's very sus. Uh, so ScoMo invested four invested in quotation marks four million of public money in a Christian group in a Christian group. And uh, he boasted about it in 2019. And the boast became rather hollow after the Esther Foundation started to unravel less than six months after he granted the public funds. So Scott Morrison made a $4 million grant before the 2019 election to an organisation with deep Pentecostal ties, which has since been forced to overhaul its management after an internal investigation into its past practices. Crikey's investigation also reveals conflicting stories about how the grant came about. The trail, though, leads directly to the Prime Minister. The allegations include that young women attending the Esther Foundation in Perth, which offers counselling and rehabilitation services, were pressured to become Christians, were forced to read the Bible aloud as therapy to improve concentration, and were subjected to all-night prayer and confession sessions led by the Foundation's founder and pastor, Patricia Lavater. A former Indigenous resident also claims she was told she had Aboriginal demons. Other allegations include that treatment for addiction and trauma was based on the faith healing methods of Smith Wigglesworth, a prominent figure in the history of Australian Pentecostalism. Morrison announced the grant in person during a visit to the Foundation's Perth facilities two months before the 2019 election. He also took personal credit for the taxpayer-funded grant, telling staff and residents, I don't invest in things that don't work. Well, the Foundation is in the electric of Hasluck, then held by a margin of 2.1 by Cabinet Minister Ken Wyatt. In a seeming parallel to the sports rorts affair, The $4 million grant was made under the government's Community Health and Hospitals Program, the CHHP, a $1.25 billion fund which was set up by Morrison to enable direct grants from the Commonwealth, a step which health experts warned would allow the government to give priority to marginal seats. So Crikey's checks show that according to the public record, the grant was approved by the Federal Health Department under the CHHP program in June 2019, three months after Morrison announced it. It was also included in a list of CHHP projects publicly announced by Health Minister Greg Hunt. In response to inquiries, 
uh, Health said the public record was incorrect and that it was funded under another program after a submission made by the Esther Foundation to, directly to Hunt's office in the month before the multi-million dollar grant was announced. So Crikey's checks also showed that the foundation received a separate federal grant of $630,000 in January 2019 under the Safer Communities Fund run by the Home Affairs Department. The Australian National Audit Office, ANAO, has been investigating the administration of the fund following reports that 90% of funds were allocated to government-held or marginal seats before the last election. The ANAO's report is due to be tabled this month. So who or what is the Esther Foundation? The foundation grew out of the work of Pentecostal pastor Phil Howe and his wife Jeanette, who ran the New Day Ministries in Perth in the mid-1990s. Jeanette was one of its founders and she and Phil went on to establish an entity called Without Walls, billed as an apostolic and prophetic company. Esther Foundation, though, was to become most identified with the husband and wife team of Patricia and Rod Lavater, who dedicated it solely to supporting young women with mental health problems and drug and alcohol addiction. The Lavaters built a powerful network of connections in Perth's business and political circles. Former Liberal Premier Colin Barnett was a strong supporter and was a member of its business committee. Under Barnett's government, the foundation was given access to low-cost accommodation for its growing number of residents. The foundation was also operated with the support of Perth's most influential Pentecostal churches. Please correct me, but I would have thought that addiction was a health matter, not oh. a religious matter. This is an extraordinary story. I don't, perhaps it explains, Dale, why Mr Morrison is dragging his feet on an back in, in Canberra. Mm. Because... Um, if this was New South Wales, he'd be in the same position as Gladys Berejiklian, perhaps. Mm. Um, it's quite a quite a, a, a terrible story, actually. It is, and it shows how um, uh, our politicians, particularly in in the coalition government at the moment, have got no idea about what separation of religion from the state means. For the kind of people they're involving exhibit the type of toxic Christianity that is anathema to recovery. If you're trying to recover from alcohol and drug addiction um, caused by trauma, then being under the thumb of some of these, well, I would call them fundamentalists, uh, is is more damaging than good. One of the um, founders was a was Margaret Court, who's a trenchant opponent of same-sex ma- uh, relationships. It's got links to Hillsong, you know, which also has got issues yeah, around. Yeah, yes, well, if they want to run these uh, these um, organisations, they can pay for it themselves. If exactly. They believe in this, uh, and people can um, opt out. But uh, these are quasi these are quangos. This, this reminds me of the um, of the situation that happened under Howard when when his own health minister and met all the ministers of the state governments. And they all came up with the idea of having safe injecting rooms. Yeah. Uh, and it was quashed when Howard spoke to the head of the Salvation Army, who said, we don't, that sends the wrong message. Yeah. That, so Howard quashed his own health minister's call. And that's you know? strange because um, Howard, in an uncharacteristic moment of foresight, 
and and wisdom uh, is actually responsible for listening to his uh, health advisors and instituting what we now have as needle syringe programs. Um, it was it was the bean counters who said if we don't create access to needle syringe programs, then we're going to have a Hep C epidemic that's going to overwhelm our health system. So in the long run, uh, it, it'll cost us less, the government less, if we create needle syringe programs. So he listened to his health people then, but um, then he just couldn't take that extra step. It's very sad indeed. And of course, uh, young people are involved. But um, we'll have a bit of break now and we'll come back to hear Jeff on America. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, if you're still listening to the Dogs Program, we're going straight to Jeff and America. Over to you, yes. Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. Uh, look, I've, I'm mining into Diana Ravitch's fantastic blog, and one of the uh, one of the one of the articles here, which you can only give a part of, but by Nancy McLean, and Nancy McLean is uh, the William Chafe Professor of History at Duke University. She's the author of a brilliant book called Democracy in Chains, uh, and it's it's about um, the danger to democracy of unfettered libertarianism, um, and she's looking at the perverse way the school choice movement distorts the meaning of freedom and choice to hide their true goal, which she believes is to protect racial segregation and to privatise public education. Uh, so essentially she's saying uh, that school choice is a, a veil which is allowing the old uh, m- means of uh, selecting what school, who, who you keep out of your school. Exactly. Uh, so it's just, it's just a, a veil. So she, she wrote, the year 2021 has provide, proved a landmark for school choice cause. A movement committed to the idea of providing public money to parents uh, to use to pay for private schooling. Republican control of the majority of state legislatures, combined with pandemic learning disruptions, set the stage for multiple victories. Seven states have created new school choice programs and 11 others have expanded current programs through laws that offer taxpayer-funded vouchers for private schooling and authorise tax credits and educational savings accounts that incentivise parents moving their children out of public schools. This is, uh, on, on its face, this new legislation may sound like a win for families seeking more school options, but the roots of school choice movement are more sinister. White Southerners first fought for freedom of choice in the mid-1950s as a means of defying the US Supreme Court's 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision, which mandated the desegregation of public schools. Their goal was to create pathways for white families to remove their children from classrooms facing integration. Prominent libertarians then took advantage of this idea, seeing it not only as a means of providing private options, but also as a tool in their crusade to dismantle public schools altogether. This history reveals that rather than giving families more school options, school choice became a tool intended to give most families far fewer in the end. School choice had its roots in a crucial detail of the Brown decision. The ruling only applied to public schools. While Southerners in America, of course, viewed this as a loophole for invading desegregated schools. In 1955 and 56, conservative white leaders in Virginia devised a region-wide strategy 
of massive resistance to the High Court's desegregation mandate that hinged on state-funded school vouchers. The State Board of Education provided vouchers then called tuition grants of $250, which in these days were $2,500 in 2021 dollars, to parents in US dollars, to parents who wanted to keep their children from attending integrated schools. The resistance leaders understood that most Southern white families could not afford private school tuition, and many who could afford it lacked the ideological commitment to segregation to justify the cost. The vouchers, combined with private donations to new schools in counties facing desegregation mandates, would enable all but a handful of the poorest whites to evade compliance. Other Southern states soon adopted voucher programs like the one in Virginia to facilitate the creation of private schools called segregation academies, despite opposition to black families and civil rights leaders. Anyway, um, it goes on. It's a really good article. They're talking about discrimination here, aren't we? They are. They're talking about We're using talking about structural discrimination. They're using the idea of choice really as a means of of stratifying society into haves and have-nots, into brown people versus white people, into whatever segregation they want. The more they divide it up, the more they can succeed in protecting their children from having to deal with poor children and things like that. Yeah, so it's, it's actually it's, going back to the 18th century. Mm. And, of course, we see this all the time in Australia with our private schools uh, that are only independent insofar as they can choose the children and teachers. Yeah, so that was a really interesting article. Uh, Look, I encourage you to read it. It's on Diana Ravitch's fantastic blog, uh, and she and Diana are actually doing a uh, podcast together, uh, uh, a webinar, uh, which uh, she could invite you to join uh, them on that and I highly I mean school choice as a mask for racism and uh, and separation of people uh, has been around it's in Australia it's we are just uh, further down the line than than America we, we're looking at them and our conservative governments are copying their moves so we must be on the guard for our, to protect our public schools. Now, we're going to move to a, a good news story now, which is, of course, our fantastic State School of the Week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the Week. State school. School of the school. Week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the Week. Schools. School for the Week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Kerrang Secondary College. Congratulations, Kerrang Secondary College. I'm going to read you some of their quotes from their website. So their school vision and values, the shared vision of Kerrang Technical High School is to provide their students with a quality education for the future in an inclusive and supportive environment. Their staff, students, parents, school council and the wider community have chosen the following values to guide them at Kareng Technical High School. Respect, responsibility and resilience. Students come from Kareng and the surrounding towns of Kundruk, Kwambatuk, Boot, Lake Charm, Murrabit, Pyramid Hill and Makona, as well as Barnum in New South Wales. And this is the principal's report. 
uh, Dean Rogers is his name, and he says, there are many things to consider to ensure the school is best fit for your child's learning and development. This includes location, transport, curriculum focus, facilities, and extracurricular activities to name a few. Next year, you will be starting a new chapter in your lives. Your child will be going from being the eldest at school to the youngest. They will also socialize with many students they do not know, learning how to get along with them and find their place. These are some of the challenges, but they can also become some of the best memories cherished due to a welcoming environment full of opportunities, both academically and socially. One of our strengths is the diversity of subjects we are able to offer. In year, seven, students, in year seven, students will be introduced to a range of subjects, including mathematics, English, history, geography, phys ed, health, science, music, Indonesian, digital learning, woodwork, metalwork, food studies, and art. This will give everyone a taste of what is on offer as they progress through the years. They will be able to specialize targeting those subjects they most enjoy. The building modernization program is gaining pace and your child's time at Kerrang Technical High School has seen a new food tech complex built. The library transformed into a 21st century learning space and the art room incorporated into the tech wing. These are exciting times. Um, finally, the principal then recommends Kerrang Tech High School to the community. Over the years, they've had students achieve excellent results, both academically and in the trade subjects and it's occurred in a safe and caring environment. I'm gonna shoot some facts and figures at you now from the Akara My School website. The ICSIA value of this school is below average at 959. And from the upper quartile of parental income, they are 4% of the students. Second quartile have 18% of students. Third quartile um, is 30% and the lowest quartile is 48%. So really it's a school with many disadvantaged students with 3% speaking a language other than English and 7% Indigenous students. Um, finances, recurrent grants. The Australian government provides $965,000. The Victorian government provides $3.7 million. And from the fees and parental contributions, there is only $129,000. Um, there are some other private contributions, which add up to $42,000 approximately, and it costs $21,000 per pupil per year, which is quite a bit. Well, which is considering that you're dealing with some of the most disadvantaged uh, students in, within the community, that's doing it pretty good. A lot of more advantaged students and schools in more advantaged areas private schools they're able to educate highly advantaged students for like sixty thousand dollars a year so when you're talking about people with special needs you're talking about people uh, like indigenous students students with english as a second language you know all the ones that the private schools won't take mm. it is going to cost more to be able to do that and the ICSIA value being under a thousand means that the area itself it's a disadvantaged area so of course it is going to cost more to get a decent education and so it should yes definitely um i would like to point out that 33 out of 35 students last year received a senior secondary certificate which is awesome and their NAPLAN results seem just fine everything is very average which is yeah great so congratulations Karang. So Kerrang Technical High School, you are doing a great job and you are our great state school of the week. Congratulations.
Well, there you are. There's our great state school. And we know it's a great state school because we know some, uh, some of the alumni, some very, very interesting alumni from that school. Uh, so we personally know about Korean Technical High School. But um, our time is gone. We'd like to remind you to become subscribers or to re-subscribe re to 3CR as a subscriber. There are some goodies that come with it. And we also uh, invite you to visit our website at www.adogs.info. But our time is gone. So from the dogs, it's goodbye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.